I start praying for a mattress. The mattress at this Oxford house is this like little twin mattress. And uh, I was like, okay, I, I want a new mattress. I don't really have any money. I was like, I'm going to pray for a mattress. So I start praying for a bigger mattress. And within like two or three days, I'm walking home from work. And um, there's a mattress on the side of the street. And I, I should have known better because my mom always told me not to pick up women or mattresses from street corners. But, <laughs> but uh, I was like, my prayers have been answered. Mattress and a box spring. Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. And today I'm sitting here with Daniel. Uh, Daniel, thanks for coming aboard and doing the, the show. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't you start us off with your sobriety date and your home group? Uh, my sobriety date is May 1st, 2014. My home group is uh, Happy Hour Group in Longmont, Colorado. And I met you out here in Longmont, Colorado at the, the Triangle Club. Yep. So I've, uh, I've been in meetings with you probably, I don't know, at least a year, maybe more. I'm not sure. It's been a while, yeah. But um, just recently we've started like talking a bit about outside stuff like work and some of the things that you do right which i find fascinating really because um you know i'm into podcasting and some other nerdy tech stuff well, do you mind telling us uh what you, what you do um so i do a little bit of marketing stuff uh really uh, by trade i'm a chef um <clears throat> and uh it just kind of got to the point where i didn't want to be in the kitchen the rest of my life so I, I had to start making some moves so i started doing just a lot of hands-on learning um, working for other people, working for free, um, just learning how to how to market and, and uh, you know grow a business, and uh, it's all stuff I was always interested in, but uh, you know I never could stay focused long enough to actually do it, and you know a lot of that was due to my alcoholism and my uh, you know addiction stuff, um, but you know I got clean and sober, and then I just kind of had this this void where I wanted to you know pick up something new, you know recoveries always been one of those things for me where, uh, you know, if I'm not moving forward, then I'm not moving. And it's, uh, it's important for me to keep my mind busy. Um, you know, I like, the, I like the concept of it's like a mind-body-spirit program where I have to, <clears throat> you know, I have to hit each one of those points uh, to feel fulfilled. And then God's kind of the middle of that, that trinity there for me. I like that. Um, you want to tell us what got you into the rooms? Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, I... I've always kind of, especially early on, I went back and forth with the idea of, you know, is this a genetic thing? Is, is uh, alcoholism and addiction a genetic thing? Um, and, you know, early on I had, I had some uh, abuse stuff going on. I, I grew up pretty normal, I would say, comparatively. Um, you know, I didn't have, you know, we weren't rich, we weren't poor, we were just kind of middle class, but I, I always had what I wanted and what I needed in my life. Um, <clears throat> And then, you know, there's some traumas happen and, and some stuff that happened later on. Um, and my parents, you know, my parents didn't drink or use a whole lot. Uh, I think I see my parents drink maybe once or twice at, a, at different family functions or something, but it wasn't a constant thing in the house. And that kind of leads me to the idea of that maybe it's not, you know, a genetic thing. And it might be. Uh, but I think, you know, in my case, I think it's trauma-based. And I, and I see that in a lot of other alcoholics and addicts. Is, is a trauma-based, you know, like alcoholism. And that, <clears throat> that may be, and it may be genetic. I don't know. But, you know, kind of 
at this point in my life today, it's, um, you know, I don't think it matters anymore. If, it, if it's genetic, if it's trauma, um, you know, I, I have whatever it is. I'm an alcoholic and I'm an addict. And uh, if that's the case, that means I need a solution or I'm going to continue to use and to drink. Um, so, you know, AA kind of gave me that solution. Um, and, it, and it saved my life. I remember the first, uh, first speaker meeting I ever went to. There was a guy, and he starts talking about some abuse that happened when he was a kid. And um, I remember thinking, like, holy shit. Like, people talk about this stuff in public. And uh, I always thought it was, like, you needed to keep that kind of stuff secret. You couldn't talk about it. Uh, you know, later I learned secrets is what keeps us sick in this program. It's what keeps us from flourishing and recovering. Um, but I remember just being so blown away that this dude was just freely talking about, like, being beat and all the things that happened in his life. And I remember coming up to him after the meeting and <clears throat> just in shock. And I remember, you know, telling him what happened to me. And he's like, good. And he's like, keep telling people. Um, and, you know, that was kind of the, my first step into recovery. I used for a lot of years after that. Um, but that was the the first point in, in my recovery where I was like, wow, like, you know, I can be open about stuff. I don't have to hide everything in my life. Uh, you know, a lot of my alcoholism and addiction was, was hiding things, hiding things from my family and my friends, you know, being two different people in, in different situations, not having any consistency in, in who I was as a person. And ultimately, I think that's because I didn't know who I was as a person. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of my recovery has been kind of just finding out who I am. And the more I find out, the more I like. Like, I, I start to love myself and be, be okay with myself. Um, so I started using when I, well, my first drink was at 14. I don't remember much about it. I had a, a couple shots of tequila, I think it was. And then I remember waking up on a staircase. I don't remember, like, the good feeling or the happy feelings or anything. I remember just drinking way too much and then waking up. And I hated it. And I didn't touch alcohol again for, I don't know, four or five years maybe. Uh, just because I didn't have a great experience with it. I just went too hard the first time. And, um, you know, I was dabbling with other stuff in there. Uh, you know, at that time, uh, prescription drugs were a pretty big thing in America, pretty readily available, so I kind of dabbled in that. Um, you know, marijuana uh, and some harder stuff. Um, you know, and <clears throat> my... I did pretty well in school. Uh, once I started using, you know, everything kind of kind of dropped off. I didn't care about school anymore, um, and I, I just all I cared about was, you know, getting the next drug and the next drink. Um, so I, I, I used quite a bit. Around 18 years old, uh, I started getting some real consequences for my drinking and my using. Um, <clears throat> 18 was the first time I went to jail. Uh, I went to jail for for a menacing charge. Um, and I remember going to jail and thinking, man, I, I don't want to be here. This is, you know, not where I want to be. And um, I left jail and immediately proceeded to drink and use again, um, not realizing that, you know, the drugs and alcohol were creating the problem. I had this idea of I just wasn't controlling it right, or I was, I was doing too much. Um, you know, so <clears throat> I had a couple more stints in jail. A lot of my, my early 20s were, was just back and forth. Uh, between jail and then I would get out and I would continue to use. Um, finally went to my first rehab at, at around 19. Um, and that was my first real introduction to, to AA. And I remember they had some outside meetings and we went to this one outside meeting. And uh, this old lady said, 
she was reading a gardening book. And it said in the gardening book, if you plant seeds close together, they'll sprout faster because they become in competition. The seeds start to compete with each other and they sprout faster. And later you pull them apart and then you let them grow individually. Um, But when she said that, I I remember thinking like, okay, so where have the seeds been planted in my life about recovery in this program? And I remember one time I had been on a bender for, I don't know, a week or so and I'm outside working on my car. And this lady comes out who lived in the apartment next to me, and she says, you know, like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm fixing my car. Now, I don't know how to fix cars, man. Like, <laughs> I know nothing about cars. But the alcohol told me I knew something about cars. And uh, so I'm out there trying to fix my car. And uh, she starts to tell me about how her uncle was in a 12-step program, and it, and it saved his life. And he got his life back. And everything, you know, turned out really well for him where he was at that point. And in my head, I'm thinking she's just telling me a story. I'm thinking she's just wanting to talk with me because I'm, I'm so uh, fun to talk with. And, uh, <clears throat> but in reality, she could clearly see I was, I was drunk and I had a problem and I couldn't even see I had a problem. She was reaching out for help as one of those little seeds she was planting. Now, things like this happen several times in my life with other people planting seeds about, hey, you might have a problem. You might, you might need to you know, look at a program maybe, because what you're doing isn't working. Um, you know, and th- that all kind of come flooding in that day at that meeting when that lady was talking about seeds. Um, you know, and I, I kind of like that about the 12 step, you know, I might, might not be able to help somebody immediately, but I can plant a seed and maybe there's a chance somebody else is planting seeds right next to those. And you get enough of those together, they might, they might have a chance at this thing. Um, <clears throat> so I went to that rehab for about a month uh, got out of there, uh, immediately proceeded to use and drink again. Um, that went on for, I don't know, another year or two. Uh, still didn't really think I had a problem. Well, I, I kind of knew I had a problem, but it was more like if I had a sufficient reason, I would quit. If I had a sufficient reason to stop drinking and using, I would stop. And what happened is the sufficient reason would be like, oh, if, if my mom kicked me out of the house, like I'm still... 17, 18, 19 at this point. When mom kicks me out of the house, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop using. Well, I got kicked out of the house, and it wasn't a sufficient reason because I found out that I could just drink and use and cover that pain, and then I would just continue it. And the next thing was, well, if I ever go to jail, I'm just going to stop. And then I would go to jail, and I would get out and continue to drink and use to cover the pain and not feel through those things, and it wasn't a sufficient reason. And I come to find out is there's never going to be a sufficient reason for me to stop. Um, <clears throat> I'm always going to, I'm always going to find a reason why it's not sufficient. Um, so <clears throat> things get things get pretty bad. Um, and I end up getting getting pretty uh, loaded one night and. Uh, We ended up breaking into my mom's house, me and a buddy. And uh, we flooded the, <laughs> when we were breaking in through the window, we kicked the water heater, flooded the entire basement. Um, so it was a pretty big deal. I ended up going to jail for that one. And uh, because I was on probation, uh, I was looking at 15 years in prison at this point. And I remember leaving the courtroom walking up to my cell and they shut the door behind you and I don't know if you've ever been in jail but that's the worst sound of this like big heavy door clicking behind you and uh, 
I remember getting on my knees and praying and saying, like, I got, I got to stop. Like, this isn't who I am. I don't want to live like this anymore. And I look up, and they have these little metal shelves, like, plastered to the wall in jail cells. And uh, on top of the shelf is a big book. And uh, <clears throat> I didn't put the big book there. Um, I didn't – I don't know who put the big book there. I like to think God put the big book there, but it definitely wasn't me. And I, so I'm praying. I look up. I see this big book, and then something tells me to read it. And I grab it and I lay there. And over the next four or five hours, I'm just reading this book. I'm reading the stories in the back. I'm reading all of it. And I start to think, like, whoa, there's, there's a way out of this. Like, this thing might actually be real. Like, I'd heard about AA over and over and over. But I never, it was more of the contempt prior to investigation thing. I never took the time to actually read it. It was always like, this isn't going to work for me. Or I'm, I'm not that weak or that whatever I, persona I put on that. <clears throat> um, but it made sense, and it all made sense. And I was like, man, there's a way out of here. So I started praying. And, um, you know, my, my mom ends up talking to the DA and everything, and we kind of get the case settled out. And, and the deal is that I go to rehab for six months at a, at a serious rehab. Uh, I remember telling the, my lawyer that he goes, well, we'll just give you, we'll get you in a month rehab, and we'll get you out. And I remember thinking, that's not going to be enough time. Like, I've tried the month rehab. It didn't work. I was like, I need something intensive. I need something serious. All right, we'll, we'll get you in this program. That's six months called the Salvation Army, ARC in Denver. <clears throat> so this program's kind of like you work for, not only do you work for your recovery, you work for the Salvation Army in, in lieu of, uh, you get treatment for working for these guys. So you do is you go into this warehouse and you sort out all the stuff that the Salvation Army gets. And then at night you're doing treatment programs, you're doing meetings, you're doing counselor meetings, stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> now going into this program, I didn't realize this is an extremely hard program to actually graduate from. It's a, the graduation rate is, is extremely low um, just because most people don't make it because A, it's a long program. Uh, B, you know, they've got their own issues that they don't want to work through, whatever reason. Most people don't make it through this program. Um, so I get there, and now this is in lieu of a long prison sentence. Uh, so if I don't graduate this program, I'm looking at prison time. So this is kind of like, you know, i gotta, I got to figure this out. Um, so I get there, and I've always kind of had this, like, little voice uh, ever since I was a kid, you know, that, like, I'm not good enough or I don't deserve things. Um, so it's always kind of been there and it, I've always, you know, purposely tried not to achieve or, or the fear of success or the fear of failure type thing. Um, but I remember thinking like when I got there, like I'm going to do everything I can to do my best at this program. And, um, so I got there within, you know, I was doing, I was, uh, I was spraying mattresses. So they get these mattresses in and you'd spray them with a chemical to decontaminate them and then they'd bag them up and then they'd ship them off to whatever store. Um, so I started there um, and then I ended up working my way into the kitchen. And then from the kitchen, I worked to the front desk and um, the front desk is like the top position there. And I did that within like 63 days. So I was, I was pretty proud of myself to, to make that fast of an advancement. Um, you know, and then life became easier there. You get a lot more uh, leeway with, with your life when you, when you kind of work through the program and, and get to the different levels of what's going on there. But um, 
It was the first time in my life that I realized like, hey, if I don't drink and I don't use, and I actually put in some effort into something that I care about, like I can achieve whatever I want. Like there's really no limit. And, um, you know, I was, I was kind of blown away with that idea. Um, so I ended up graduating that program. Uh, I moved to Kansas. I moved to a, a town uh, called Manhattan. Uh, it's not as cool as Manhattan, New York, but you know, they call it the, the Little Apple. Um, so I moved there. Uh, my mom ends up getting breast cancer. Um, so that was a really hard time. I, I had about nine months, I think, and uh, I ended up drinking. And um, that was my first real relapse after some, some recovery time. Um, <clears throat> And of course, you know, uh, the reason for the relapse was uh, I didn't stop going to meetings and made big changes in the first year, had stress in my life that I wasn't dealing with or coping with properly, um, wasn't calling a sponsor, all the things we hear that lead to relapse. Um, so I ended up relapsing, going out for about two years, uh, and this is, this is what I consider my bottom. Uh, you know, we hear that you know, bottom can be anywhere. You can keep digging. There's trap doors. There's all kinds of snakes and fun stuff going on. Um, <clears throat> but this is what I consider my bottom. And it, it got real bad. It got worse than it's ever been at any point in my life. Um, and I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, so <clears throat> one of my friends, one of the only friends I had because I had drank and used everybody away, uh, got me into this rehab. And this is when the real miracles kind of start happening in my life. Gets me into this rehab. Now, I was on unemployment. I had, I don't know, $234, I think, is what I had in my bank account. And I go into this rehab, and I'm supposed to get uh, a month of rehab. Well, I get there, and on the third or fourth day, they're like, well, you don't have insurance anymore. The state's not going to cover you. You got two days to get out. And uh, I had nowhere to go. Um, and I didn't have any money. I had that $234. Um, <clears throat> so like, I'm just kind of, kind of lost. I'm like a little devastated. And again, I turned to some prayer and, um, I start after the lunch, little lunch period, I start walking down the hall and there's this room off to the side and I hear some people talking. So I kind of peek in there and it's the Oxford house group. And, uh, they're trying to recruit some people for the Oxford house in, uh, this part of Kansas I was in. And um, so I sit down and I start listening and I'm getting interested and then I ask him, well, how much is it, how much is the first month's rent? And they said $230. Now I had $234 in my bank account. And uh, that was one of those moments where I was like, okay, you know, like God's, God's helping me out here. Like what are the coins, what are the chances of that happening? Um, so I do the interview, I get accepted. I move to the Oxford house. And uh, <clears throat> immediately, immediately go to a meeting that day. And uh, I really, I really like the fellowship there. Now, this is in Salina, Kansas, and uh, they've got some great recovery there. And uh, immediately, like, I get back, get back home after the noon meeting. I'm sitting there, still the first day. I smoke a cigarette. I go inside to take a shower. About 20 minutes later, I get a knock on the shower door, like, hey, come here, come here, come here. So I get out and I run downstairs. I had not put my cigarette out all the way, and I burnt down the whole wraparound porch on the front of this wow. this um, Oxford house. So, you know, now I'm feeling a little rough here. Um, 
you know, we end up we end up getting it fixed. And but I, I was so selfish and self-centered at, at this point, right? It was still all about me. I was still really, really new in recovery, um, and uh, <clears throat> you know, so I didn't I didn't really understand what these guys did for me at the time. Like they had to pay a lot of money out of pocket to fix this porch mm. and to allow me to stay there. They could have kicked me out. They could have done whatever. Uh, there was some grace there and they allowed me to stay. Um, so after that, I started going to meetings every day. <clears throat> now, during this, this last relapse, I was doing a lot of uh, drugs, hard drugs. And, um, you know, I was, it was really foggy and blurry and you know, I couldn't think clearly or talk clearly. And it was just a really rough, rough couple months to kind of get back to a baseline. Uh, but I remember walking, I had to walk to this meeting every day. And it was about a mile and a half away. And I'd walk along the train tracks to get there. And uh, <clears throat> I remember thinking, like, man, that's all I got to do is just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I used to watch my feet as I'd walk on these tracks, just saying that over and over. It's just one foot in front of the other. And, like, don't drink, don't pick up, just keep going. And um, that's what I did. The very first meeting I went there, <clears throat> there was this guy named Bobby. And uh, I remember walking up to the meeting, and he's like, well, who are you? This dude, no, this dude's like a 78-year-old car salesman, old guy. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I'm Daniel, and kind of tell my story. And he goes, well, it looks like you're full of fear. And I was like, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, you're afraid. And it didn't make any sense then, uh, but I was. I was absolutely full of fear. And he mm. said, you know what recovery is about? And I said, what? He said, recovery is about doing things you're afraid of day after day. Mm. And, um, you know, I've never heard truer words in this program. Um, but that helped me out a lot early on because it let me know that it's okay to be afraid. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of like the idea of courage is, is being afraid and still doing it regardless. Um, but that really helped me out. And I was lucky enough at those meetings that it was just a lot of old timers, like old farmers, old businessmen that just been around the block, knew what they were doing, um, or at least pretended like they knew what they were doing, made sense to me. Um, so I, I had a lot of early recovery, or really good recovery early on, and, and a really good fellowship there. Um, so like I said, I started doing two, three meetings a day for, I don't know, a year. I'd get to as many as I could, because it's the only thing that made me not feel crazy. Like I'd wake up feeling crazy. I'd wake up in despair and doom, and you know, going to those meetings for that hour was the only thing that <clears throat> kind of settled that for a little bit. And then by the time you know, the next meeting would roll around. I was already all wound up again. I remember going to these meetings sometimes, and I would sit two hours early on a, on a bench waiting for the meeting to start because I just felt comfortable being there. Um, <clears throat> so I started doing a lot of meetings. I started going to different fellowships, getting really uh, into the, the fellowships and the community, and, and I started doing H&Is, um, started taking meetings into a psych ward, which is, which is really interesting to see people at you know, that level of insanity. Hmm. Um, you know, I wasn't lucky enough to go crazy and get sent to a psych ward. I always went crazy and got sent to jail. So, hmm. um, but it's, it's, a, it's a different perception to see that. And it makes you really like root for these guys that they can get this program. Um, <clears throat> so I did that for, for quite a while, man. I got just really involved in the fellowship and, and um, you know, life was, life was pretty good. Um, you know, some things I learned during that period, um, one was there was a point 
uh, three or four months where I really wanted to test the boundaries of prayer and meditation. And, um, you know, everything kind of became a God thing. Like I would go to Walmart and there would be a parking spot right in front. And I'd be like, man, thank God. Like there's, and I'd feel it. I'd be like, God, put that parking spot there. Uh, or I'd get like an extra cherry in my limeade and I'd be like, man, God's at it again. Like two cherries instead of one. Like everything became a God thing. And uh, I was really stuck on this idea for a month or two. And it was kind of like this magical time in my recovery where like I just felt really connected to God and, and higher power. Um, but I'm like, all right, well, let's let's test this out. Now, prior to this, I had been a chef for a, a pretty big catering company that spanned a few states. And um, and then I, you know, everything kind of fell apart and I ended up in this Oxford house. And I'm like, you got to get a job. Now, if there's one thing I don't like, it's like work. I don't, I don't like, <laughs> I don't like work. I, it's not that I don't like work. I don't like working for other people. Um, I prefer to work for myself. But uh, so I'd been doing this like high-profile chef and job, and then I had to get a job. Like you got to get, get a job or you can't live here. So I'm like, all right, I'll just find the closest because I had to walk. I didn't want to walk four miles to a job every day. I didn't want to take the bus. So there just so happened to be like a McDonald's, like a quarter mile away. So I'm like, all right, I'll just get a job at McDonald's. Like, that'll pay the bills, low stress. Like, I don't have to, I can focus on recovery. So I get this job at McDonald's. And they put me up front. And, uh, you know, when you go to McDonald's, they got the screen. They're like, what do you want? And then they're typing it in the back. And you think they're kind of doing some magic back there. But if you, like, were to reverse that and look at that screen, it's just like a picture of a Big Mac, a picture of cheese. And they're just, like, pressing little infographics. And, um... It was, it was a fun job, and uh, <clears throat> it was just kind of cool going from where I was. Just just the lowest stress is what I really liked about it. And uh, oh, and we used to have these these old guys that would come in and get coffee every day, and uh, they would just sit around, a bunch of old retired guys, drink coffee for a couple of hours, and then they'd take off. And I'm, I'm talking to one of them one day, and he's like 93 or 94, and, he, and he's still driving. And he comes in, and he's all fired up because he just drove there in his new car. And he's like, I'm 94 and I can still drive and I can, I can drive fast and he's saying all this stuff. And, um, and I remember being like, man, you got it. Like, you got the deal. You got it together. You're just a happy dude. And I remember saying like, man, if I'm as happy as you when I'm 94, like that's going to be awesome. And he like looks at me like I'm stupid. And he looks over his shoulder and he goes, well, aren't you happy now? And it didn't really hit me until I was walking home, and I was like, holy shit, he's right. Like, if I can't be happy right now today, I'm not going to be happy when I'm 94. I'm not going to be happy when I'm 85. It's always going to be fleeting. Like happiness and contentment and serenity, it happens now. <clears throat> and um, it was like a really profound moment. But back to the prayer thing. So <clears throat> I want to test the boundaries of prayer and meditation. And um, I start praying for a mattress. The mattress at this Oxford house is this like little twin mattress. And uh, I was like, okay, I, I want a new mattress. I don't really have any money. I was like, I'm going to pray for a mattress. So I start praying for a bigger mattress. And within like two or three days, I'm walking home from work. And um, there's a mattress on the side of the street. And I, I should have known better because my mom always told me not to pick up women or mattresses from street corners. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I was like, my prayers have been answers. Mattress and a box spring. 
So I, I run into the auction house, get one of the guys. I'm like, man, help me, help me carry this in. And get it, we get it upstairs, and I'm laying on it. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, like God's at it again. Like, here's another miracle. And, um, and then this thought just comes into my head like, hey, you know, God's, God's definitely there, but God's not doing all the work. Like if you hadn't have been going to meetings every day, if you hadn't have got some humility and got that job at McDonald's, if you hadn't have, you know, done the next right thing, you wouldn't be in this situation. And, um, you know, that was the next big lesson in my recovery is that, you know, God's going to be there for me and God's going to do what I can't do. But if I put in the work, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to get the rewards. There's a part in the book that says, you know, we were rocketed into the fourth dimension and, and a few paragraphs and chapters leading up to that are saying like you know you work the steps you do this and you do that and then one day you know you're just going along and you're rocketed into the fourth dimension the way i like to look at it is like those paragraphs and, and steps before that is us building the rocket like we got to show up every day and put the fins on it and bend the metal and find the fuel and, and do all the parts to build this rocket god's part is to come along with that match and light the rocket and then and then we're there um, but if i don't put in the work and i don't build that rocket i'm not going anywhere um so that was that was a pretty big lesson um you know another another thing i learned early on was i remember sitting in a meeting and and i, I love the old timers and i especially love like the the grouchy crotchety old ones that you know you, you'd think they're just mean all the time if you didn't know any better mm-hmm. um <clears throat> But I had I'd put my foot up on a chair next to my chair in a meeting. And there was this old timer who always sat in the back of the room, always talked about sitting in his armchair. He's, he always said, if I wanted to, I'd go home, sit in my armchair and drink a, drink a bottle and float off into oblivion and death. And that was like his, his, uh, his coined phrase. But <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I put my foot up on this chair during a meeting and he calls me out and he says, God damn it, Daniel. He's like, we don't we don't disrespect AA and he just tore into me for like five or 10 minutes and uh, not 10 minutes, but it felt like 10 minutes. Bet. Definitely <laughs> a while. And I remember being so pissed off and I had maybe four or five months at this time and I left and I'm huffing and puffing and I call my sponsor and I say, Oh, do you hear what so-and-so did? And I was like, that's such bullshit. He's calling people out in meetings and he goes, well, he's probably right. And uh, I remember just being completely deflated and, and thinking, you know what, he probably is right. And it was explained to me that we respect AA. And the reason we respect AA and, and other 12-step programs is because it's a matter of life and death for people. And, um, and you respect that. You respect that people change their lives in here, hmm. that they don't die a day at a time in here, that they get to live a day at a time in here. Um, <clears throat> You know, and that, that, was a, that was just a huge lesson in my recovery early on. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the cool thing about sponsors is, is, you know, if I trust my sponsor, even though, like, I think I'm right, a good sponsor is going to get me to that point where I can get some humility and realize that I might not be right. Mm-hmm. You know, I always want to think that, you know, I know best or, you know, I can do this differently. And, and sometimes I can't. I just need a different perspective. That's, that's kind of how I look at the program is we come in here and there's this wall in front of us, this giant mural, and we're, we're two inches away from this mural. 
and all we can see is a little tiny section of this mural. And, and for me, when I came in, it, it was just a dumpster fire. Like everything was destroyed and burnt and it was just trash. And uh, every day I keep coming to this program, <coughs> every day I work steps, you know, I get a, I get a little step back from this mural and, and the picture kind of broadens and it, and it opens up and it turns out that it's just this beautiful thing of life and it's not just a dumpster fire. Sure, there, sure there's some little fires going on, but there's also like a lot of growth and beauty and, and, and just things that I can't see unless I get that perspective. Hmm. Uh, and then the opposite goes. You know, I stop working steps, I stop coming to meetings, and I just keep stepping closer to that mural. And again, all I'm looking at is the fire. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I get the daily reprieve contingent on uh, the maintenance of a spiritual program. Um, so this <clears throat> this whole period in my life was was pretty magical and it was pretty great. Um, I learned a lot about recovery. Um, I was lucky enough to be around a lot of old timers. Um, it was it was just a pretty good time in my life. Is this just your first year, or is it? Uh, this couple was years? about two years. First, yeah, first couple of years. Yeah, nice. and then uh, <clears throat> and then I kind of I kind of got complacent, and uh, I decided to move back to Colorado. And um, so it was told to me, you know, when you when you make a move in recovery, and you and you're looking for new meetings, uh, don't go in there and you know, I, I, I got a humility problem sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it was explained to me, you know, don't go in there and be like, I got all this time and I know all this and all that. It was explained to me, hey, just go in there and tell them you're new. You don't have to tell them how new you are. You know, just tell them you're new. New to the area, whatever you got to say. And they're like, just kind of get a feel for different meetings. Um, you know, and I get here and every meeting isn't doing it right type of deal. And... Um, because it wasn't wasn't like I was I was used to, mm -hmm. and within a within a few months, you know, again, I stopped going to meetings, stopped calling a sponsor, have a high stress situation in my life that I'm not dealing with properly. Um, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of a reoccurring pattern at this point, and I end up using. Um, <clears throat> now this time I end up using you know just pot and stuff, and I justify it as it's not drinking. It's not hard drugs, it's legal, it's, it's whatever, you know, crazy shit I'm telling myself. The whole time inside, I'm like, man, I can't feel that conscious contact with it anymore with God. I can't, I don't feel right about this. Uh, but I couldn't stop. Um, so <clears throat> I went out for about four years and um, continued to use. And, and uh, again, I wasn't, wasn't drinking and I hadn't picked up a drink since... You know, it had been a few years at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but the pot was kind of a constant thing. And, uh, you know, my life didn't necessarily get worse, but it didn't get any better. Um, I still felt like it was somewhat manageable. Uh, but again, it wasn't getting any better. Hmm. And uh, it took me about two years to admit that, hey, this is a relapse, dude. Like, you picked up. You, you've lost that conscious contact with God. You use a substance every day to maintain your, your sanity or whatever spin I wanted to put on that. Um, but it took me about two years to be like, okay, this is a relapse. And um, the next two years were spent with, with guilt and shame about relapsing and, and trying to figure out how do, I get, how do I get my life back? How do I get this old life back? And... Um, <clears throat> 
what I found out is I had to come into the program like I was a newcomer. I couldn't, I couldn't lean on all that old sobriety that I thought I had. Um, the other thing I found out is that period in my life was primarily built around fellowship. Like, sure, I worked the steps and, and uh, you know, I had a sponsor and I was doing that stuff, but I don't know that I really worked the steps. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I kind of came to the idea that, hey, my recovery can't be solely built around fellowship. Um, I got to have a solid foundation, especially in, in one, two, three. Um, I got to have a solid foundation because it doesn't matter. The fellowship eventually is going to leave. Given enough time, you're going to be in a situation without fellowship for an extended period, I think. Um, so I had to come back in the program and kind of kind of see it with fresh eyes and I, and I had to ask for help and that was the hardest part is to admit like hey I have all this knowledge of the book and hey I've done all this and I know these things um, but I didn't know how to apply them I, I, could, I could speak the words and call the pages and say the things but I didn't know how to apply them in my life and um, it's really hard for things to make sense when you haven't surrendered um, and, then, and that's kind of what I came to is like, hey, I'm a newcomer. I got to look at this like a newcomer. I got to say, I don't know how to do step one. I don't know how to do step two. I don't know what sanity is. I don't feel sane right now. My life sure is unmanageable. Um, <clears throat> and I need help. And that's what I did. And um, the most amazing thing happened. Like uh, the fellowship kind of grew up about me. And, you know, I had people to talk to. And I, I could go you know, went long periods without using pot and didn't bother me. And, um, you know, eventually after about that four years, I stopped and it was, it was clean and sober. It wasn't just sober anymore. Um, and I started to feel good about life again. Um, you know, and that kind of leads up to, <clears throat> to today where, you know, I, I'm, I've got so much gratitude for this program and, and the things that have happened in my life. You know, I always hear the there's always this big thing going on about, you know, I'm a grateful alcoholic. Well, why are you grateful? And don't you feel bad about all the things you've done? And don't you, you know, you know, <clears throat> I wouldn't change anything I've done today. Um, and I am grateful. And the reason for that is like, there's somebody else who's doing those things right now that's going to walk in these rooms one day and they're going to need me or they're going to need you or they're going to need somebody who's done those things to say, hey, I've done those things. And guess what? I've got this time now and I'm okay with it. And you can be okay with it too someday. Um, I think that's important. You know, step one, <clears throat> admitted we were powerless. Lives were unmanageable. Um, and I never thought that I was necessarily powerless. I always said if, if I had a sufficient reason, I would stop. Never found a sufficient reason, which means I'm powerless. <laughs> uh, of course, my life was unmanageable. You know, step two, <clears throat> restored to sanity. Um, you know, we came to believe that we could be restored to sanity, which means it's a process. Uh, it sure wasn't like an overnight thing. I just, I just started to get a little, little bit of faith. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of the guy that believes in, in the mustard seed idea. If you need a doorknob to be your higher power when you come in here, by all means, use a doorknob. Because I guarantee if you stick in this program long enough, 
in, in one year, one month, mm -hmm. two months, six months, it's not going to be a doorknob anymore because you're going to start seeing what this, this life and this program offers. And it, it may change to a fan or a light switch at that point. But I've seen, <clears throat> I've seen too many people come in and start with a doorknob and the doorknob turns into the mountains and the mountains turn into the moon and the moon turns into the universe and whatever they settle on, it doesn't matter, but it just keeps getting bigger. And that's a pretty amazing thing. And as it gets bigger, <clears throat> our understanding gets bigger. There's this concept in philosophy where as, as we become more intelligent, our God becomes more intelligent. And um, you know, I see that in my life. As I start to get new insights and understandings about how I operate, about how my brain operates, how I, how I process things and work through things, you know, my God becomes this bigger thing. Like just as I think like, it's as big as it's gonna get, like it's, it's infinite. Like I just see like a new layer of it. I like the concept of, you know, we're all in the same building looking out a different window and what we see out that window is our perception of God. Well, nobody's saying we can't go check out somebody else's window and get a little different angle on what's going on. Um, you know, my whole life I was in that room, but I wasn't looking out a window. I was just staring at my feet in the corner, wondering what everybody else is so happy about and why I, why I can't see what they're seeing. Hmm. Um, I really like Plato's allegory of the cave too, which is a great example of this. So in Plato's allegory of the cave, there's a guy who's lived in this cave his whole life and he's, he's shackled and all he can see is the wall in front of him and there's some lights behind him and, the, and in front of him is just these shadows dancing. And he's like, well, these are monsters or these are, these are animals or these are whatever. <clears throat> but he doesn't quite know because it's just shadows. And then one day he wakes up and uh, he's not shackled anymore and he starts to starts to walk around and he, he walks out from where he was shackled and walks up and he sees all these people walking carrying these sticks and he's like oh man those weren't monsters and shadows and and whatever he's like those are just people's carrying sticks and uh he continues to walk and walk and eventually he comes to the mouth of the cave and he looks outside and he's like whoa like it's a whole world going on out here you know, I, this whole time I'm making all this stuff up in my head that's not reality, and this, this is real. And he leaves the cave and goes on and experiences life, and that's kind of the end of the allegory. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, a philosopher came around a few years later, um, Nietzsche, and he, he kind of looked at this allegory, and he goes, well, you know, why didn't the guy go back in the cave and tell everybody else that those are just shadows, or those are just people, those aren't monsters, and those aren't these things you're making up in your head? He goes, I just, I, I don't understand why I didn't do that. And that's kind of like the program. You know, I come into the program and I get those shackles released and I'm like, oh man, there's a, there's a whole world out here that I've been missing, you know. But uh, the cool thing is I get to go back in the cave and say, hey, you know, that's, that's not real. Like there's something you're missing and like, let's help you find it. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and I just kind of, I kind of love that idea. Uh, step three, <clears throat> um, you know, that's, that's a tough one. Something that's really helped me with step three is, is prayer, meditation, uh, affirmations. Affirmations, I don't know how they work or why they work, but I know if I keep telling myself something over and over, I'm eventually going to believe it and it starts happening in my life. Mm. Um, you know, and that's kind of what's got me to where I am today is like, you know, hey, <clears throat> I want to learn marketing. And then I'm like, I'm a marketer. And I just tell myself that every day. And then eventually I get really good at it. Or, hey, I want to learn, you know, cryptocurrency trading. And I become really good at it. You know, affirmations have been a big thing. And I think that's just kind of like a prayer to myself. I consider it a prayer. And, and maybe it's going out to my higher power as well. I mean, I'm sure it is. 
But, uh, you know, again, it comes back to that idea of, like, there's something in me that doesn't feel deserving. It doesn't feel like I deserve happiness or I don't, I don't deserve serenity or contentment. Um, you know, I've always had this problem of, like, where everything's going well and then I, like, shoot myself in the foot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have to do that today. Like, I can be okay with being okay, which is pretty okay. Um, you know, step four, when I got to... <clears throat> Everybody always talks about, oh, this step four is so scary. I've never been in one meeting where people are like, where I didn't hear, you know, oh, step four sucks or something negative about step four. Um, until I heard a lady in a meeting say, she, was, uh, she went to Native American meetings, and she goes, you know what? At our club, we never say anything bad about step four. We just talk about it like it's any other step. And I was like, why do you do that? She's like, because it's not terrible. She's like, I think people just get a bad idea because everybody else thinks <laughs> it's a hard <laughs> step. And I don't know if there's any truth to that. I do know when I started step four, um, I would write like one or two things down and I would get like emotionally drained and I'd have to like take a nap. Because it is, you're, you're kind of stirring up these, these old things that you've tucked away and um, there's feelings associated with them. You know, when I drink and use, I drink and use to escape my feelings. I didn't want to feel. And the bad part of that is, you know, feelings is what helps keep us from making the same mistake. So a normal person, or what I would assume would be a normal person, would would do something that didn't make them feel well, or something would happen to them that didn't make them feel well, and they would follow that storyline of not feeling well and work through the grieving process and work through all of that and then come out to the other side and not create the same problem again because they've already lived through it. Me as an alcoholic, I do something to somebody else, something, somebody does something to me, there's feelings around it, and I drink, and I don't live out that storyline of feeling, and I just tuck it down. And then it makes me feel bad for not feeling through it and resolving it, so I drink more, and then something else happens. I like to think of it as I'm driving this car down the highway, this car of life, and things happen to me. And uh, I just throw them in the back seat, and something else happens to me. I throw it in the back seat, and something else. And I just keep throwing all this shit in the back seat. And then one day, you know, something happens where I got to slam on the brakes. And I slam on these brakes, and everything in the back comes up, and I'm just covered. I'm covered in all the problems I didn't deal with. And um, I can't get myself clean. I can't do it on my own. If I could have done it on my own, I would have felt through them, and I would have, I would have uh, learned a coping mechanism. I would have you know, handled it, but I couldn't. Um, and I sure couldn't when I was covered in all of it. So I needed a sponsor and I needed somebody to show me like, Hey, you know, your elbow's a little dirty or Hey, you mm-hmm. know, wipe this off or try Windex here. Or, mm-hmm. You know, I needed somebody to, to tell me how to get myself free. Um, <clears throat> and that's kind of what the four step was, is like taking an inventory of the mess I made. And, um, you know, one thing happened where it's like, well, hey, you know, this happened to me and I was just a kid and, you know, I, I, I can't see my part in this. I remember calling my sponsor and being like, I, I mean, I'm trying, but I just don't see my part in this. And he's like, all right. He's like, well, it's like your part might be the fact that you held on to it for so long, that you didn't feel through it, that you didn't talk about it, that you didn't handle, you know, what was going on in your life appropriately. And uh, that made a lot of sense. You know, I think today that no matter what it is, we have a part in everything that happens to us. Um, again, I can't always see that part, and that's why I need a sponsor. Um, <clears throat> you know, five, 
five telling somebody about it, I, you know, it doesn't have to be a sponsor. You, you always hear that you can tell a, a priest or mm-hmm. whatever. I, I always wanted to try calling an Uber driver and just being like, take me to Denver and just laying a bunch of shit on him <laughs> and just having him drop me off, see if that works. But uh, It's not a bad idea. I, I, I thought it was pretty <laughs> sweet. Um, it's a little more costly than having your sponsor meet you at the club. But, um, you know, and then six and seven, man. Six and seven, I think, are the dirty little secrets of the program. Yeah. Uh, six and seven is the one that you don't, you don't hear a bunch of meetings on. I've heard sponsors say, hey, I can, I can take you through six and seven in an hour, um, <clears throat> which I don't agree with. I think six and seven is prime time to really sit and investigate and see what's going on and why I do the things I do mm-hmm. and, and how can I change them and how can I implement better mechanisms for handling those situations. Um, so when I got to six and seven, I wanted to sit on them. And there's this book called Drop the Rock. <clears throat> it's a great book. It's on uh, character GFX six and seven. Um, and there, there's a lot of different literature out there. But, uh, you know, that's a really tough time because I think if you're really working on those character defects, again, you got a lot of feelings cropping up, cropping up and you're coming off of, you know, you're coming off a of step four where you've, you've, you've started to dredge up all these old things and then you're asking your higher power to help you out uh, because it's a big job. Um, so in six and seven, I really wanted to investigate my character defects and see why I did what I did. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't believe character defects are removed from us. I, I, I kind of look at it as our character defects are on this line, this, this linear line. And on, on, let's say, the right side of the line is a, is a positive. Mm-hmm. And on, the, on the left side of the line is negative. And uh, we kind of oscillate in between with the character defects. So our character defect of, say, stealing, you know, I, dr- I start drinking and using, I'm going to start stealing. I start working a program and I start giving, right? So I, I kind of swing that pedal pendulum to the other side to a, a positive um, the reason I say they're not removed is because I know if I picked up a drink today or a drug today I would I would swing back to the other side if it was removed it wouldn't come back that that character defects always in me it's always a possibility um, but the thing is if I'm if I'm working a program and doing the next right thing and talking to God and doing the things I need to be doing I can stay on that positive side of this linear line and that's kind of how I look at my character defects Big part of it is, you know, I think we all have character defects that we can't see no matter how hard we look. You know, there's always, there's always, you know, I know several people that just have a glare. And I know we're not supposed to take other people's inventory. And that's probably a character defect of mine. But, um, you know, there's just some people you're like, that's a huge character defect. And uh, no matter how much they're talked to about it or whatever, they just don't see it. And I think those are the real ones we need to work on. And that's what's cool about having a sponsor is that, you know, they can point that out and I'm not going to, I might get upset because it's the truth, but I'm not going to get too upset because I I know I can trust my sponsor. Um, So I think those are the ones that are really holding us back or the ones we don't, we don't easily notice. I mean, Mm -hmm. I could, I can list off a bunch of my character defects, but I'm sure I still got a bunch that I don't notice or I do notice, but I just say, Oh, they're not that bad. Mm -hmm. And I say that because they work. I don't want to get rid of them because it's working why would I want to get rid of it um plus it's lost right like a character defects like a good friend it's like somebody you can count on to get you through a situation well sometimes you're comfortable yeah you know for sure 
Sitting in your own crap can be comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> it's warm and comfy. You made it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that's the thing. So there's almost like a grieving process with with uh, getting mm-hmm. rid of a character defect, right? Mm-hmm. First, we gotta we gotta go to some dark places mm-hmm. to identify it. Yeah. And then we identify it, and then there's like this this process of letting it go, of like you're kind of negotiating with it. Well, I'm only going to use it in this situation, or what? I'm not going to I'm not going to do it all the time, or. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like this this, you know, and then you're kind of grieving it. It's just this whole phases of loss thing with character defects. But eventually, you know, you you kind of come through it and you recognize it. And I look at character defects like drinking. If I want to have a character defect uh, taken from me then I can't use it. It's the same as drinking. If I want to stop drinking, I can't pick up a beer every couple weeks. Right. I just can't do that. So judging from, you know, how you're talking, you know your steps really well and all the work that's required, you know, to go through the steps and get clean and sober. Um, but you've had your, your downfalls or your relapses. Right. Earlier you had said that um, when you had your first relapse, you remember you were doing the things that people always talk about doing when they relapse, like, or you weren't doing those things, like going to meetings, right. calling a sponsor. But behind all of that, do you recall the like the reason, like emotionally, were you just hopeless feeling, or just feeling like there was, like you were exhausted, you know? <coughs> I think I reached a spot where things weren't moving fast enough, where I felt like I should have more, I should be doing more. Um, yeah. And that, that was a tough spot. And uh, I think there's a lot that comes along with just like giving God time to work and um, having some patience. And, but I, it, was, it was complacency. And again, it's, you know, I admit I'd made this big move and had all these expectations on what should happen after this move mm-hmm. and when those expectations weren't met um you know it was kind of a letdown and it was just like a it was, it was a slow progressive thing when you talked about your pot smoking and how you didn't realize it was a relapse until two years later right you had said something like you weren't doing any worse but you weren't doing any better either right it was like you were stagnant again. Right. And you come across as somebody who doesn't like to not be moving forward. Right. You know, but this one was a slow killer. Right. Like two years before you recognized it, you know. Um, what do you think? Did I kind of nail that one right? Yeah, I would say, you know, I had a lot of identity wrapped up in that few years of recovery of mm-hmm. that this is who I am now and this is who I want to be for the rest of my life yeah. and, and then to not have that anymore and to be back where I was for so many years before that yeah. didn't feel good mm-hmm. gave me more reason to use to, to cover that pain hmm. and out of all of this if you could go back in the times you needed it most what advice would you give yourself I don't know if I would have listened. Yeah, maybe not. Right. I don't know that I have. I don't know that I have any advice that I would I would give myself. You know, today I'm grateful for where I'm at, and it took what it took. Yeah. It takes what it takes. I wouldn't have listened. (laughs) 
you know, even if I came back at like, like Terminator through a big electrical cloud and I was like, hey man, like, mm-hmm. do the steps, like, don't, don't do this and don't do that, like, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have listened. Well, that's a good point. And, um, you know, I'm grateful because I, you know, I have a family today. I just had a baby recently. Um, yeah. Tell us a little more about today because you've yeah. got some cool stuff yeah, going today's, on. Today's pretty good, man. I just, my son's about 10 months old. I got married a couple years ago. Um, you know, I'm working for myself now. Uh, it's just, I mean, life's good. I do a lot of like freelance marketing and, um, yeah. you know, run some websites and have a clothing brand. And so I, I just started a community a few years ago and it's kind of blown up pretty big. And, yeah. um, it's, uh, it's been a, it's been a pretty good deal, man. Good. Um, you know, I like the freedom. I like to be around my son and, mm-hmm. and, and I have a daughter as well. Um, and just to watch them grow up it's not something you know I never thought I'd be in a place to have children you know what I mean I always told myself mm-hmm. like you can't have kids unless you got your life together yeah. and um to get to that point where like I can give myself permission like okay like you're doing all right like you can you can you can care for another human being now you're seeing the promises oh absolutely funny story about the promises is I I didn't even know they were I mean I'm sure I've read them in the book but I didn't comprehend them or I must have skimmed over them or something and seven or eight months in somebody cracks open the book and is reading the promises and I'm like whoa like every every one of those have come true and I remember opening the book and reading them and I'm like that's nuts (laughs) like this isn't like you're not thing where you're like you hear something and then it comes true or whatever I mean these had come true and then I heard about it I'm like wow that is amazing nice final question yeah If you could summarize your story in a sentence or two, how would that read? Expect miracles. Thanks, Daniel, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. And thank you, listeners, for checking us out another week. Remember, you can uh, find us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to check out your podcasts. Feel free to leave us a review and share us with your friends. We'll see you next time.